Okay, so uh, we are moving into the uh, last chapter of the book of Ephesians in our uh, series of uh, studies. We're moving on from our considerations last week about husbands and wives, and we're going to be thinking about essentially two subjects today. First one is parents and children, and the second one is masters and slaves. And as I said last time, we can see all of this in the context of verse 21 from chapter 5, which talked about the need for us to be submitting to one another. So this is all about how we submit to one another in the context of different relationships. And even if you're not a parent, or a child, or a master, or a slave, there are principles here which apply to us all. Um, because it's all about how we develop and show a Christ-like character in our day-to-day -day lives. So we're going to start with parents and children. So I'll read uh, the first part of the passage, which is Ephesians chapter 6, and reading from verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. <coughs> Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now let me just get the obvious thing out of the way. I know that you know that I know very little about parenting, okay? But I do understand that for those of you with children, having and raising them is one of the most precious and probably the most challenging things that anyone could ever do in this life. Um, so I know that you'll all have given a lot of thought to all of the things that I'm going to talk about um, today uh, already. And, and you'll know more about putting these into practice than, than, than I ever will. So I'm just going to ask that you give me the benefit of the doubt. I have consulted with people who actually do know what they're talking about, and I'm just going to try and say, uh, not say anything stupid, okay? <laughs> if I do, you can tell me what it's really like afterwards, if you can catch me. Um, okay, so... Um, the passage kicks off with instructions to children. Now, I do know about that, because believe it or not, I, I was one once. Um, now, it's important that we remember uh, the children are hugely important to the Lord. Um, not to mention the future of the human race, so uh, no pressure, kids. Um, you know, you know um, Luke 18, verse 16, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Children are very important. But as children, as you know, we, we start off in the world knowing absolutely nothing. And even as an adult, we're still learning. But as a child, as a baby, it would be a gross understatement to say they've got a lot um, to learn. Uh, and even teenagers who obviously think they know everything, as we all did when we were teenagers. 
um, even they know very little compared with the whole life experience of their parents. And so, for the sake of the children, the instruction to the children is to obey their parents on the assumption that their parents do know what they are talking about. Now, the command is obey. Obey your parents. And the word comes from two words, apparently, um, so I, I'm told. Um, two words in the Greek language, two root words. And the two words mean listen and under. So, before we obey anything, and at any age, it's important that we listen, isn't it, first? And, and, and listen properly. You will um, know that whenever the Lord Jesus uh, taught, he very often began with the word, listen. Listen, I've got something important to tell you. Uh, capture their attention, and if they listened properly, they would, they would learn something. So listening is, is very important. But the second word, under, to me that suggests that there has to be a willingness to submit to the authority which is over the person who is doing the listening. And in this context, children should listen to their parents carefully and with a readiness to submit to whatever they're being told to do as soon as they've understood it. As a child and a, a teenager, I listen to my parents all the time with closed ears. Um, you know, as soon as they started to talk, I decided before, I, you know, before they got a word out, I'd already decided that I was not going to do whatever it was. Whatever it was, I'm not interested. Even if it sounded like something that I was interested in, I would decide that they'd got it wrong in some way and you know, my way was always going to be, to be better. And that's not the attitude that God expects, not from children, not from any of us when we listen to him speaking to us from, from his word. Now the passage gives three reasons why children should obey their parents. And the first one, we might call it the natural law. It says in verse 1, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's an expectation, isn't it, in every society right through history it's the normal expectation that children will obey their parents. It's, a, it's, it, it's a, you know, regardless of what people believe in, uh, what their religion is, it doesn't matter where you go in the world, the normal expectation is that children will obey their parents. And actually in Romans 1 and 30, Paul talks about the symptoms of a broken society, the effect of sin in the world, and he gives us one of the characteristics of the depraved mind of the fallen world, he says, disobedience to parents. Interesting that he picks up on that, but we might look and listen in the media today, and it just seems to me, maybe we just know more about it now, but it just seems to me that as each decade goes past, there's more and more symptoms of disobedience um, from children in the world, parents losing control, feral children, and all that kind of thing that they talk about. You know, a generation of kids who their parents either can't control them or don't want to control them, whatever it is. Uh, disobedience to parents seems to be a symptom of the modern age. And maybe, just maybe, that's a sign 
that the end times are getting ever closer, that the return of the Lord Jesus is getting ever closer. But that's the first thing. It's the natural law. It's the right thing to do. But the second thing comes second in the text, but it's the more important, I think, is that it's the divine law. It's the divine law. Even if a child doesn't want to do what their parent is telling them, they should know that God commands it. And so, if it's a sin for a child to disobey its parents, then it must be a sin for a parent to condone the disobedience. Does that make sense? If it's a sin for the child to disobey and the parent just sort of turns a blind eye to it and kind of suggest it doesn't matter that the child hasn't done what they've just been told to do, then I guess the message that the child gets is that actually obedience isn't that important. Well, that's, that's got to be a sin as well, hasn't it? Easier said than done, I know, but, um, but that's, you know, that, 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 that's how it reads to me. Um, I should add, though, that like the husband's headship that we were talking about last week, God does set limits on a parent's authority. Um, children are told to obey in the Lord. And whilst that means that a child's duty to obey their parents is a duty to the Lord, it also means that their parents shouldn't ask the child to do anything which is contrary to God's commands. Shouldn't ask the child to do anything which is contrary to what we understand to be God's will for us all. So that's, uh, that puts a duty on the parent to get things right as well, doesn't it? So natural law, divine law, and then I think the third thing um, is, is what we get in verse 2. And it does definitely have a wider application than just children. Because we all cease to be children, eventually. But we'd never cease to be the sons and daughters of our parents. And as long as they're alive, we are instructed to honour them. To honour them. And that's not a new thing. This is not a new New Testament teaching. Because Paul quotes... Moses from the Ten Commandments. He goes right back to Exodus chapter 20. Honour your father and mother. But what does that mean? What does honouring um, our parents actually mean? There's no suggestion in the original language that this is to do with obedience. That's why I think we have the two different instructions in this passage. Obey and then honour. It's, it's a different thing. And as adults, we might not always agree with our parents... And legitimately, we might not always do what they want um, us to do. There's also the potential um, in old age for our parents um, to become more dependent on us. Um, the possibility that they might become less capable um, in making their own decisions. There might be occasions where for their well-being... They might even need to be told um, what they need to do. It's kind of role reversal, isn't it? It's kind of like when the children get their own back on their parents <laughs> in later life. Um, but there's no suggestion of obedience here. But in all of that, there is the command that we still honour our parents. And that means, I suggest, always treating them with love and respect always considering their feelings and what they need um, and what they want, not necessarily the same things, 
And sometimes, and I'm sure we've all heard of examples of this, well-meaning or maybe even not well-meaning sons and daughters sometimes push their elderly parents into doing things that the parents don't really want to do. Um, and treating them with dignity and respect uh, means allowing them the freedom to choose the things that they want to do, which might not necessarily be the best option from, from our perspective. But we enjoy the right to make our own mistakes, don't we? <laughs> so why would we take that right away from our parents? Unless we genuinely believed that they did not have the ability to make an informed decision and their welfare really was at stake. Um, we need to honour our mothers and fathers. There's another reason, though, which is quite curious, if you read it. Um, the other reason that we should honour our parents for is that there's a promise. If we <coughs> honour our, our parents, we will live long and happy lives. Now, what's that all about? Because obviously, well, we have to take that in a general sense, can't we? Because we know that obedience and honouring our parents does not on its own guarantee or determine how long we're going to live and how happy and fulfilling our lives are going to be. It can't be. We know t we've got too many examples of people that are role models of honouring their parents and they didn't live long and happy lives. So it, what, what do we mean by this promise? I think what we've got here is, it's kind of almost stating the obvious, but good parenting sets a child on the right path in life. I know, I know, I know that much. Um, everything from how to tie their shoelaces, how to cross the road safely, the importance of brushing their teeth, to the difference between right and wrong, the importance of keeping good friends and avoiding not so good friends, the importance of education and having a good work ethic. You know, these are all important, and in all of that, the importance of God's word. If they are the things that the parents are teaching, and they are the things that the children are obeying, obeying uh, and even beyond when we're no longer children, honouring our parents and respecting their wisdom um, and their instruction in these kind of things, it's got to have a good effect on our lives, hasn't it? So I think that the promise is given in that sort of sense. It's not a guarantee that you honour your parents and lives, you're going to live a full three score and ten. It's just saying that actually if we learn the lessons that our parents should be equipped to give us, then it can really help us in our lives and set us on the right direction. But it, it does set that expectation on the parents, doesn't it? So this is where the pressure really begins. Parents have got a really big big job to do and that's let's let's look at verse 4 verse 4 says fathers do not exasperate your children instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the lord i don't know why it only says fathers there because in the context of what we've just read um you know it's it, we're, we're addressing we're, you know we've got mums and dads in view here and from the smile that Haley's just given me i think she thinks there's probably more 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 responsibility on the mum than there is on the dad um, so let's, I think it's, it's for, maybe there's a cultural thing, or maybe the dads in Ephesus had a particular problem and that's why they were being told to stop exasperating their kids. But um, I think this is, it's legitimate for us to take this advice um, for both mums and dads. Uh, and it starts with a negative. Don't. Don't exasperate your children. 
Or in some translations, you might have the word, don't provoke your children. So we get a similar instruction in Colossians 3 and 21, where it adds, or they will become discouraged. They will become discouraged. So let's think of both sides of that. How might a parent exasperate or provoke their, their children? I guess parents being unreasonable, um, expecting more of their children than what they can reasonably do. That might be one cause of exasperation or, 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 or inconsistency, or unfairness. Even children have a very acute sense of what is fair. You know, why does one child have the, the crispy thing with the eggs and the other child's got none? It's just not fair. I mean, they, they know all about fairness and unfairness. And parents which condone unfairness is going to ex exasperate uh, their children. Um, perhaps it involves unnecessary criticism, always fault-finding. Some parents, sadly, um, you know, are, are, are prone to that. And, of course, we'd all agree that it must include neglect, not providing for their needs. Um, but it goes beyond not having starving children. It's because the needs that parents have to provide for includes their spiritual and their emotional needs as well, doesn't it? So neglect would include not making time for your children, not, not showing that you care, regardless of whether you care or not about them. If they, 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 you don't show them they care, they can feel neglected, <laughs> and that can lead to exasperation. So we've got that, and then the discouragement in Colossians 3. Um, I think that's really important, and I think that could be absolutely anything any form of discouragement about anything, everything um, in life, um, everything that we might ever consider doing, everything that we might ever want to do or believe in or aspire to, all of that requires motivation. It all requires motivation. And if we take that away from children, or indeed anybody else that we might have influence over, where does that leave them? Where is anyone in life without motivation? They're going to go nowhere. They're never going to fulfill their potential. They're never going to do anything. It's not living. It's not living to the full. So it's important that we don't take away their motivation. Let me just give you um, one little example of how this applies in, 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 um, in church service. Um, I won't give you the, the name of the person, but there's, 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 there is a brother in a church who never takes part in the remembrance, ever. Hasn't done um, since he was a teenager. Um, and actually, um, even in other things at church service, he's always been a little bit on the fringe, not quite engaged. And I remember him telling me one day what he thought the problem was, because he recognises that it's something that he just can't get himself motivated to do. And it was when um, he was a teenager and he took part for the first time, and he made a few mistakes. <coughs> he didn't say the right things. And an overseer came up to him afterwards and said, don't worry about it, you know, you had, a, you had a good go, and, you know, the Lord knows what you meant, and we all enjoyed it, so keep on. No, he didn't say that at all. He says, I suggest you don't take part again until you can do it properly. And presumably, he still doesn't feel he can do it properly. 
We need to encourage, not discourage, don't we? But how do we do that? Three positives. We've gone beyond the negative. Three positives in the, in, in the passage. And the parents are told to do instead. Okay, so what are they? First one is to bring them up. Let's not gloss over that one. That's not an introductory to what, phrase to what comes afterwards. Bringing up children, I know from what I can see and hear and understand, I know that's a big deal. You guys with parents give years and years of your lives to bringing up your children, nourishing them, feeding them physically, spiritually and emotionally. Bringing up kids is a big deal. Um, and doing it properly, I, I understand, is, is really tough. So Paul says that's the first positive thing to do. You can bring your children up properly. That's, uh, that's great. You know, that's, that, that, that's the first thing. But secondly, when you're doing that, is to give them the instruction of the Lord. They need to be taught. Now, that obviously includes the example that we set but the example on its own isn't enough. If we only set an example and don't explain why we behave the way we behave and why we do the things that we do and don't do other things and why certain things are important and why we never miss remembrance or all those kind of things, they won't, at that young age, they're not going to put things together and realise why and they won't know what to believe in. They won't, all the things that, that we enjoy, it's important that children are taught from an early age and that we carry on teaching, obviously, this principle actually applies to us to the whole of our lives um, but it's important and if parents don't feel able to teach their children from the scriptures adequately and actually even if they think they can it's important that they're given the opportunity the children the opportunity to go to Sunday school to YPM to camps to YFRs and things like that and to hear the scriptures being taught by other people as well as making lots of um, lots of Christian friends, of course, which is another positive to all those things. Um, you know, I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, we didn't have the whole menu of things that you can go along to um, as a young person today. <coughs> you know, there was very little. There was Sunday school and there were YPMs. I can't, was there anything else, Ange? I can't really think of conferences. That's right. Oh, they weren't for children, though. You know, children had to just keep quiet and not fidget at conferences. So YPMs and camps. And I had a paper out. Um, YPMs and Sunday school and camps. I had a paper round. Six days a week I did. Seven days a week I did my paper round. I had such a good work ethic, thanks to my parents. Um, they made me pay for my computer. That's what it was all about. <laughs> they provided the finance, but I had to pay the payments. So for about six years I did a paper round, morning and evening, six days a week, apart from Sunday when I had the evening off because there's no evening paper. Uh, but on a Saturday, my parents would do my evening paper round for me when it was a YPM to make sure that I went to the YPMs, you know, and it's just, and it's just, it's just an example, you know, I mean, you know, life is more complicated maybe now than it was, you know, it's, everyone can't go to everything, but I think it's just a good example of how parents should try to give their children every opportunity in one way or another to learn um, the scriptures, to have them taught. And then the third thing that's mentioned is training. And training's where the teaching really gets put into practice and embedded in a child's life. It's, it's how a, ch a child learns to stand on its own two feet. It's where a child learns to make decisions for, their, for, the, for themselves without being told what to do, because they're going to have to do it. 
One day, aren't they? We all did. We can't have our parents telling us what to do the whole of our lives. We have to teach them how to stand on their own two feet because eventually the kids won't, you know, parents won't be around at all. Um, we know that will happen. So the training is really, is really um, important. And within the training, the meaning of the word training there, there's also an expectation of discipline. It's part of the, the idea of, of training. And I'm not going to say anything about different forms of discipline. I know that's a contentious um, subject in the world today. But however it's implied, um, we know whether it isn't pleasant. I know it isn't, 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 isn't pleasant. I don't think my dad ever hit me, but he, he often used to raise his hand as if he was going to. And I think, that, I think that's smarter as much as he, if he actually really had hit me. Um, you know, so well, however discipline is applied, it's not pleasant, but Hebrews 12 and 11 says that it's worthwhile. It says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So training is important. Now, we're running out of time. Um, you wouldn't think I was going to spend most of my time talking about the subject I know least about. Um, but let's try and just say something briefly about slaves and masters. One thing to keep in mind, and we haven't got time to go into the historical background um, to all of this. Some people ask the question, how could there possibly be slavery in the, in the church? Um, but what you have to keep in mind is that slavery in the culture, culture of the first century um, in as much as it affects the churches of God, so slavery in Roman and Greek and in Jewish society, wasn't normally, there were exceptions, but wasn't normally the kind of slavery that we associate with our history over the last few hundred years. Um, there was a lot more, in it wasn't exactly the same, but there was a lot more <coughs> in common with the modern employer-employee relationship. So actually, when we read this, it's not just about what applied 2,000 years ago. We can actually apply some of these lessons to, um, to our lives today. And actually, if we're trying to do that, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say it also applies when we're in the situation of being an employer of maybe a tradesperson that we have to do services for us in our home or garden or, or whatever it be, you know, the plumber or the gardener or, the, uh, or somebody building an extension. We are for a while in a relationship where they are working for us. We are their masters, so to speak, as we're paying the cheque at the end, of the, the end of the day. So there is lessons in this passage about how those relationships should work um, as well. So let me, just, um, let me just read then the passage then from verse 6. It says, um, from verse 5 rather, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favouritism with him. So how can we apply these um, verses to our lives? Think of the, the idea of the employer-employee relationship as we go through this. As employees, 
um, we are expected to obey our employers, our earthly masters. And we're given four different ways that we should do that. Um, the first thing it says is do it with respect. Respect. So regardless of what you think of their capability, regardless of what you might think of their suitability to be your master, boss, manager, whatever the term is that you might be familiar with, regardless of what you think about them personally, we are told that we should respect their position and respect the authority that comes with it. Why do you think Paul might have been concerned about that in the context of the, um, the church in Ephesus? Well, you think about it. For those who had masters who were in the church, bearing in mind their spiritual equality, we're all one in Christ, and also perhaps in some circumstances where in church roles, the slave had authority over the master, like perhaps if they were a teacher or an overseer, you can see how that could cause problems, couldn't you? When they went back to their day job, their day-to-day -day relationship, the possibility that the slave might not respect the master um, and that in turn could cause problems um, back in the church. And then for those who um, had non-Christian masters, those who, were, um, those who had masters who were ignorant of the gospel, who were not children of the king, who, uh, who were unregenerate, you could just see how maybe the slaves could actually look down on their masters in a sense because they don't have the special precious things that, you know, that I've got. And the possibility that that could lead to a lack of respect. And what would that do to the testimony? How likely would that master be to ever believe in the gospel? How likely would it be that that master would tell all of his friends how difficult his Christian employees were being? So Paul actually gives advice to Timothy on both these points. I'll just read a quick verse from um, 1 Timothy um, chapter 6. It says, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. And those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their servants. So the lesson that we can apply in our situation is respect. It's very important that we, we, we show respect. And the second thing we're expected to do is serve with sincerity of heart. Now, to be sincere means to be honest and truthful and genuine, hallmarks of any Christian. But if we're struggling to do that in our work scenario, we should just try and remember that our duty of obedience is a work of God in itself. And verse 6 says that we're slaves of Christ. And verse 7 says that we're serving the Lord. And verse 8 says that it is he who will reward us one day. So whatever grief you have to put up with in work or in whatever scenario that maybe you have, which is a, a bit like a work um, scenario, you, know, you might think, I don't get paid enough to put up with this. You know, if ever you get that sense of feeling, then we need to just refocus and realise that we are working for the Lord and we should serve with sincerity. And thirdly, conscientiously. Now that word isn't in the text, but I think that is the meaning, the thought behind verse 6, where it talks about not only doing things when they're looking, when, you're, when, when your boss is looking. Um, we should serve 
conscientiously. So maybe you think that your job is uninspiring. I certainly do from time to time, actually most of the time. Um, you might not think your job is, is, is up to much, or it might just be a stepping stone on your way to something that you really want to do, or it might just be summer work or some other job that you're doing temporarily because you really, really need the money. You know, whatever it is you think about your job, it's important that you still do your best in it. Serve conscientiously. And actually, that does have benefits in the workplace as well. Um, very briefly, um, one of our very senior directors retired a few years ago. He gave a little speech at his retirement um, thing, and he was just saying how he'd managed his career. I might have told you this before, actually. Uh, just one of those things that just stay, uh, stays with you, because in my company, they're always going on about career planning. You know, do this course, do that course, you know, think strategically, think tactically, take this role because it will get you to here and there. And, you know, all this. and he said, I never did any of that. He said, all I've ever done in my whole career, in whatever job I've been given to do, I've just done my best. And the opportunities and the advancement just kind of came along with that. I don't know, maybe he was lucky. Um, but it's a, good, it's a good ethic to follow because actually God commands us to do it anyway. And then the fourth thing and the final thing is that it says that we should serve wholeheartedly. In other words, not reluctantly. Not given the impression that we'd rather be anywhere else apart from doing this stupid job. Um, try to think of reasons to be cheerful and enthusiastic. Um, and if your job or your pay or your colleagues or your boss um, isn't enough incentive for you to feel cheerful and enthusiastic about your work, then again, just refocus and think you're working for the Lord. You know, imagine if you were working in the heavenly temple, doing some job, you know, watching the door or whatever it was, and the Lord was on looking at you all the time and you're always in his view, would you really go about with a miserable, I don't really want to be here kind of look on your face? You wouldn't, would you? I'll tell you, I'll let you into a secret. Actually, you know this one, don't you? His eye is on us all the time. So let's not um, serve in any other way in our secular employment or in anything else that we do in the church or in our private lives. Uh, let's never serve in any, other, uh, any lesser way than wholeheartedly. And then finally, you wouldn't believe it, but in two minutes I'm going to cover everything that the masters are going to have to do. And that's, why, and that's because it's the easiest one to cover because um, it, 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 in verse 9 it just says do the same. It says whatever principles apply to the slaves, to the servants, to the employees, the masters should do the same. In the same way it says. And I think in simple language that just means you want respect, show respect. If you want diligent and sincere service, then you serve likewise. If you want to be surrounded by cheerful, honest, motivated people, lead by example. So these instructions, all of them, um, to parents and children, to masters and slaves, employers, employees, uh, they make sense practically. And they can benefit our family and personal and working relationships. But at the end of the day, and I've hinted at this already, we shouldn't, our primary motivation for doing all of this shouldn't be what we can get out of it, although we will get a lot, but our primary motivation should be because the Lord commands it. He wants it. It makes him happy. Um, and um, it's also the example that he sets. And I know David's quite 
um, keen to set us, set us homework sometimes when he's giving ministry. But you know, if you, it would be an interesting study for you to look and see how the Lord behaved in all four of these roles. As a child, as someone who had parental responsibility with his brothers and his disciples, he had a fatherly responsibility in all of that. Um, he also obviously was a master and he was the one who came to serve. So we can learn an awful lot about how the Lord applied these principles in his own life. So I'll leave it there. We've um, covered um, two different subjects really very quickly. Actually, do let me just read, finish to, uh, by reading these, these few verses because Steve, Steve was talking uh, in his last ministry about how the, um, the, the, the Holy Spirit and him filling us actually makes all of this stuff easier. And as I said, verse 21, which I'll finish with, is the one that, that sets the context for everything that we've thought about. It says in chapter 5, verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. May God bless these thoughts to us today. Shall we pray? <clears throat>